Hello, this is Angelica Yingst, and you're listening to Centered, grounded conversations about the metaphysical. Blessed Samhain, which is, it's Angelica Yingst. I'm here with your Samhain history. And actually, today honors a full turn of the wheel since I started sharing my writings on the different uh, holy days on the wheel of the year. So most of my writing and research is from a book that I've been writing called Cycles, which I've been working on for many years. It was the companion book to my Oracle deck. And now I think the Oracle deck is the companion to the book, but who knows? Anyway, I debated, do people really want to walk through another year of Wheel of the Year insights from me? Um, But this year I thought, you know what, maybe I will expand it a bit and bring you not just the history of the pagan and agrarian calendar and Wheel of the Year, but also the history of Halloween and how the two intertwine and some of the Christian holidays that you're already familiar with and how they got kind of, they subsumed the pagan Celtic holidays and how that all worked. But um, as you know, many cultures around the world have festivals and traditions that honor the dead. And, you know, the festivals are very important. There was a time when we were not so afraid of death. We weren't so separate. I mean, most children had seen dead bodies because people died in their homes and people were carried out and they were mourned in their homes. You know, they were put in the front of the house and people would come and pay their respects and then they would bury them. So it wasn't that long ago, you know, we're talking, you know, 150 years. So it's kind of like that crazy idea of like, which was the first president born in a hospital? You know, I think it was Jimmy Carter. (laughs) So it it was pretty normal for people to have given birth in the house, in the, the house and to die in the house, you know? So Uh, And that meant we were just very comfortable with dead bodies in a way that we aren't now because we're so divorced from it. But um, it's part of culture and part of religion to honor all of these rites of passage that we go through and all the emotions and feelings. You know, we celebrate love with marriage ceremony. We celebrate the life of someone and their death and we mourn their death at their funeral. But these specific festivals are often based on lunar cycles, um, the cycle of the earth, because if you look outside and you're in the northern hemisphere, the leaves are changing beautiful colors, they're falling to the ground, uh, the plants look like they're dead, (laughs) you know, things are dying. And this was the last of the harvests when we look at the, the wheel of the year. And thusly, it becomes, you know, the new year. You know, some of these specific festivals that honor the dead are Dia de los Muertos, of course. Now, a lot of people think it's just a Mexican holiday. It's Latin American. It's probably biggest in Mexico. Um, But I know, you know, my my mother's Panamanian and they would have Dia de los Muertos uh, celebrations. They would go to the graveyard. They would feast, you know, those kind of things. They would offer um, food to the dead. And, you know, even when I was in... um, the Cook Islands. I remember every house had, you know, kind of a a tomb in front of their house, which would be decorated with flowers. It looks so much like Dia de los Muertos, but they would put all these tropical flowers around and honor their dead, which would be buried in front of their house. So um, in 
on November 1st and 2nd, which is when we celebrate Dia de los Muertos, it is also All Saints Day and All Souls Day. And we're going to be talking about that a lot because that kind of is what subsumed uh, Samhain when, you know, the Christians came into uh, the Celtic lands. Um, but there are also um, so many celebrations around the world. They just don't all happen at this time of the year. Like you'll see some in the spring, you'll see some in August, September, kind of when the autumn starts. In in Cambodia, though, there is a festival. It's a 15-day religious festival that falls either September or October. And it's basically where you offer food to monks to make prayers for deceased relatives. In Belarus, there is a festival, and I would I just can't pronounce it. It's D Z I A D Y. I mean, I should have I should have googled it and figured out how to say it, but I didn't. Um, but I would say it's something like Ziadi. Who knows? It takes place in late October, early November, and involves commem- commemorating the dead with drinks, food, and rituals. Okay. When we think of this time of year, I mean, most of us think of Halloween. Um, trick-or-treating, costumes, all those things. But, you know, what it really comes from is the ancient Celtic celebration of Samhain. Of course, it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, pronounced Samhain. Um, And it was a pagan festival, pagan just meaning country people, farmers, um, that welcomed the the end of the harvest or sort, sort of honored the end of the harvest, the last harvest, the third harvest. The third harvest is the one where you harvest the animals, okay? You clear everything off the field. It's time to start tilling over everything and, of course, getting ready for winter. It was thought that anything left on the field were going to be eaten by, like, the fairy folk or they would be kind of cursed so you didn't want to eat anything that was left on after your Samhain celebration. Now... One of the things about the pagan religions of of the Celts, which we kind of can say like there's Druids, there's uh, basically like Celtic religion. They're not all the same. There were different pockets. And that's how it is even in the Greek world, ancient Greek world, in ancient Egypt. I mean, there were many gods, many uh, different folk practices. They interlapped. They, they, They folded over. But, you know... There would be cults around certain gods or goddesses, um, and it, it was the same in, in the Celtic region. So you'll hear some things will be like Irish or um, Scottish. Sometimes they're both. You know, a lot of it, it would be too much for me to go into every little thing, and I wouldn't. You know, I didn't even do that kind of research. But you can kind of say like in Celtic pagan religion for the most part, there was a dichotomy between light and dark. Okay. So the light was like this positive, uh, optimistic, uh, fruitful, abundant energy. And the negative was threatening and destructive. Okay. And that was something that every farmer, every agrarian community lived with the idea that, you know, it would, it could be really good or it could be really bad. So Celtic new year begins at sundown at the end of uh, Samhain. Okay. And then the other big holy day, we call them the two greater Sabbaths are 
Beltane, which that's how we pronounce it in America, but I think it's, you know, something else, Bel Beltane or Beltane. Uh, and then um, Samhain. Okay, so Beltan, Beltane is May 1st. Samhain is basically October 31st, November 1st. And so basically these are our big two spirit days. Okay, and what that means is because they were sort of like the beginning of harvest and the end of harvest, this is a time when the spirit world became visible to humans. The gods enjoyed playing tricks on mortals. It was a time when the spirits kind of came into the land of the living. And so that was, you know, part of the energy. It made it one of the most important, if not the most important festival of the year. So because it stands in this midway point, it was thought bet between fall equinox and winter solstice that this was the beginning of winter, okay? And that sounds funny, I know, because we're so used to thinking of it as like, well, autumn actually starts on autumn equinox. Well, yes, but you can really feel the winter coming. <laughs> like, you can start to feel autumn on, on August 1st when, it celebrate, when we celebrate Lamas or Lunazda, and then the height of it is autumn equinox, according to kind of the agrarian calendar, the pagan calendar. We're thinking of it now like, okay, this is the end of harvest. So this is the end of the season. We're beginning winter, which is our fallow season, right? Three months of nada. So that's part of the reason why um, Samhain becomes the new year. It's the end of the year, the beginning of the year. After harvest work is done, we kind the kind of celebration would begin. Okay, so this was the last day of harvest. There were uh, sometimes a big wheel, like in Druid, I think they would um, start the fire on a big wheel. Um, and how they would do it was cause friction, spark flames. The wheel was uh, considered the representation of the sun. And it, along with prayers, they would, you know, slaughter cattle that wasn't going to last for the winter and they would um, store the winter, you know, store the meat for the winter, but they would also sacrifice. Usually what happened, and I don't know if you guys know this about ancient Greek too, they thought that the fat was the best part of the meat. So they would cut off the fat and put it in the fire to, to honor the gods and goddesses and then use the meat. So during the celebration, some of the Celts, some I don't know if it was Celt or Druid, they would wear the skins of the animals, okay? And that sometimes is considered one of the first costume wearing. Um, typically, it was the head and the skin behind. And you can you probably have seen representations of a uh, shaman all over the world doing this. It was a pretty normal thing where they would, um, we call it embodiment. They would turn into, you know, and pretend to be the animal. In this way, it was a little different because they wore them, not trying to embody the animal or, or do anything, but they would do it um, and tell each other's fortunes, okay? So really early texts that kind of sh like talk about Samhain say it was a mandatory celebration that lasted three days and three nights. And they had to show themselves to the local chieftains or, you know, the king or the lord or whatever, however you want to say that. And so you know, failure to show up basically was resulted in punishment of some kind. Often they would think that it would cause punishment to the community. So there was a, uh, there was kind of an incentive for everyone to force everyone else to go, right? 
So um, they also believe that the spirits were able to come in and talk to the priests, talk to the, the monks, talk to the spiritual people to make predictions about the future. And a lot of this was, you know, they were reading the natural world for signs. Um, and some of it was like, we hear it now, like in the um, Farmer's Almanac, that was kind of some of the stuff they would do. Okay, well, we're looking, oh, look, all the, I don't know if you've ever heard this. My husband just said this one the other day that um, when, oh, is it the squirrels? Um make deeper nests or something <laughs> like that. Like they know when it's going to get cold. So they would, you know, kind of look for those kind of um, signs uh, about what kind of winter they were going to have or what was happening in the natural world for their harvest in the next year. So when the celebration was over, everyone would take um, a branch or something and they would take the fire from the bonfire and light their own hearth fire. Um, and the idea was, you know, the community was sacred and brought that sacred protection in uh, to each home. So, um, you know, there was a kind of military aspect to Sawin in part of the Celtic um, cultures. I mean, particularly in Ireland, they see some of the idea that, um, during Samhain, uh, you couldn't commit a crime, you couldn't use your weapons, and if you did, you yourself would face a death sentence. And that was part of that military aspect. And there's a number of um, stories and things like that about war that comes up. Um, and I'm not going to go into all of those, but you can kind of look them up. Now, by, the, by 43... Uh, in the Common Era, A.D., as it used to be said, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of the Celtic territory, okay? And so then they ruled the Celtic lands for almost 400 years. And during that time, uh, two Roman festivals became combined with the celebration of Samhain, okay? So we, first we see the Roman influence in Samhain. First was Feralia, which is a day in October when the Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead. The second day was a day to honor Pomona, the, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. And so the symbol of Pomona is an apple and the incorporation of that celebration into Samhain probably explains part of the tradition of bobbing for apples, of having apples on the altar. Um, I, I know like just anecdotally, a lot of people I know say, oh, I always have to put an apple on the altar. Of course, that's part of the Pomona uh, honoring, you know, that, that, that was happening. So um, there were traditions of um, all kinds that came in in the Middle Ages when Christianity kind of gained a foothold in pagan communities. They, were tr they tried, the Christian leaders, tried to reframe Samhain as a Christian celebration. And so you will see this kind of coming in. Um, now, one thing to say that Samhain in the Middle Ages, as it progressed, became a fire festival. So it was a big bonfire. And these were called Shananigans. Shananigans. And I broke that down because it's not spelled that way. It's spelled S-A-M-H-N-A-G-A-N. 
And so shenanigans is a word that seems to derive from this. So there's, it's not totally clear, but um, during the bonfires, which were traditional, they, they were burned to protect families from fairies and witches. And so the carved pumpkins called jack-o'-lanterns, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, began to appear around this time. And they had a piece of coal in them. And so um, they would kind of have celebrations and games and all that kind of stuff and paraded around with noisemakers. And also the tradition of a dumb supper, which I don't know if there's a change in that name, but (laughs) I still see it referred to as that. But it began during this time in which food was consumed by people after inviting the ancestors in. And so the family kind of like sets a table, sets the table with one extra plate that would be filled with food for the spirits. Um, And sometimes, you know, they called it the dumb supper because nobody would talk and they would get their messages through, um, you know, their brains and (laughs) like hearing it. Um, And so the children would make like a little play to entertain the dead and the adults um, after the dinner would tell the dead all of the things that happened in the last year. And so that night, sometimes the doors and the windows would be open so the dead could come in and eat everything that was left for them. So as Christianity began to like reframe these uh, celebrations, um, they had to like kind of put them in. So the Pre-Christian customs were actually pretty important to the Catholic Church because they wanted to get the hearts and the minds of the people. They wanted to convert them. And this is like, if you have read the New Testament or the Bible uh, from a Christian standpoint, I mean, as a religious studies major, I can just tell you that there is a debate within the Bible itself on how to convert people, right? Right. Like the big one is, should people who aren't circumcised have to get circumcised as adults, right? Because circumcision usually happens to children, and that's a Jewish rite that happens from, that's, you know, required in the Old Testament. Well, the Bible that we're converting Jews to Christianity, they mean they're trying to argue that Jesus is, you know, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament or the, you know, the Torah, So they're saying, you know, of course, you're going to keep the rules of Judaism. But then you see that pull in Matthew, Luke, and John, not John, not so much, but, you know, they're converting Hellenized people. So they're converting pagans. They're converting, you know, the Romans. They're converting people who have not been circumcised, who believe in many gods, who have these stories, right? of, um, you know, the son of God being half God, half man, right? Um, Like all these heroes in Greek myth, Jesus falls along right along that pattern. This is not, I mean, I don't know why I'm talking about this because we're talking about Samhain, but I'm just saying that Christianity was very concerned with how are we going to convert these pagans, okay? And so a lot of what they did, which was pretty smart, was continue to allow them to have their celebration say oh yes uh bridget your goddess bridget yes she is a saint in our religion we believe in her too you know 
So there were a lot of, a lot of that stuff was getting reframed. So the importance of the pre-Christian customs was important. So Pope Gregory I, known as St. Gregory the Great, headed the church from 590 to 604. And so he advised a missionary group going to England that instead of doing away with the customs of the non-Christian people, they should convert them to a Christian religious purpose. So for example, a pagan temple could be converted to a Christian church. And that was kind of important. So Samhain, this dark supernatural festival, got converted and given a Christian context. The first time that happened for Samhain was Pope Boniface IV, who would, he, he tried to start All Saints Day. Now he was like, let's move it to the spring. So he changed it to May 13th and dedicated the Pantheon in Rome as a church in honor of the Virgin Mary and all the martyrs. And so when he moved it to May 13th, it just didn't stick because the fire festival was in October. It didn't, it didn't match. So, you know, they, they honestly, the ancient people in Ireland, Scotland, you know, England, they believed that there were threatening spirits around Samhain. So if you move the holiday, that didn't change the fact that there was still all these threatening spirits that were going to come haunt the, the field, right? So, um, you know, the, the medieval church believed in the saints, and so they were trying to give this supernatural element to the saints so that they could convert pagans. Okay, so when they actually did uh, mix the two for Samhain, it was in the ninth century. And now this is another Pope Gregory, but it's Pope Gregory III. And he moved the celebration back to the fire festival of Samhain and declared it All Saints Day on November 1st and All Souls Day on November 2nd. So the current date of November 1st was established in the 8th century. And then he dedicated a chapel in Rome, St. Peter's Basilica, in honor of all the saints. So the old beliefs associated with Samhain never really died out. They continued. And the symbolism that, that de the festival for the dead was too strong to ignore. Okay? So the celebration first of all, was limited to Rome, and then later it sort of extended out. Um, so the evening before All Saints Day was called All Hallows' Eve. The older English term for the day was All Hallows' Day or Hallowmas. Uh, the day after All Saints Day is All Souls' Day. So the day before All Hallows' Day is All Hallows' Eve, and Halloween basically means the saint's evening or with Ian, that part is a truncated word that the Scots used for evening. That's how Halloween came to be named that. But all of those days, All Hallows' Eve, All Hallows' Day, and All Souls' Day were collectively known as All Hallowtide. And so we really see the first use of Halloween coming up in like 1775. And Halloween became the time when Christians could kind of use uh, supernatural symbolism and rituals for Samhain and have some fun, right? It is mostly secular today, even though all, all uh, Saints Day and All Souls Day are still celebrated, um, we think of Halloween and we don't really think of some religious connection. 
Now, the Samhain uh, festivals that are happening with the modern pagan or the neo-pagan movement, they still involve bonfires. A lot of people do dress up. A lot of people do honor their witchiness at that time, at this time. Now, the tradition of trick-or-treating really can date back all the way to the early All Souls Day parades in England. During those festivities, poor citizens would beg for food and families would give them like pastries or cakes called soul, soul cakes in return for their promise that they would pray for the family's dead relatives. So soul cakes was encouraged by the church as a way to replace the ancient practice of leaving food and wine for the roaming spirits. So instead of um, going like trick-or-treating and saying trick-or-treat, you know, they would basically say like, let me um, sing, a, a, say a prayer for your loved one. Sometimes they would stand right there and do the prayer. Um, I mean, most of the time they would. So the practice was called to go a souling. And then it would be taken up by children because, you know, adults were kind of embarrassed to do this, who would visit the house and be given ale. Of course, they'd be given beer, food, and money. At least as early as the 16th century, we see this practice of mumming and geezing or guising, uh, and that was also recorded. So mumming is a tradition that, you know, has pretty much faded from the general memory of, uh, you know, our collective memory, so to speak. It really predates Halloween, uh, but it can kind of be considered a forerunner. Now, I'll just preface this by saying they don't really know. There's a lot of theories on how trick-or-treat started, and I'm going to give you a bunch of them. So just know that there's probably a little bit of every one of these in the practice, okay? So um, if you look up the term mummer, it basically is one who dresses up and puts on plays, right? Um, but a mummer is kind of more than just that. They would, according to like Nordic and Celtic traditions, they would disguise themselves in the plays, um, but they were also a being that could walk between worlds. So they were able to go into the spiritual realm. They were able to go into the muggles realm. Um, and this is why like um, they were kind of dressing up because they were, uh, you didn't know if you're getting a spirit or if you're getting a human, Right. And this is why, like, there's old Scottish traditions that have the mummers on Hogmanay, Manay, Hogmanay, Hogmanay, um, which is New Year's, by the way, in Scotland. Uh, so they would travel to people's homes and then perform uh, an old custom of asking for food and performing, and then they would drive away the evil spirits. And so... Mumming is practiced all over Europe, and it's still practiced like at that New Year's time, Shrove Tuesday, Epiphany, uh, Christmas, all of those. In Philadelphia, uh, some of you might be going, that's where the Mummers Parade is. Exactly. That's the Mummers Parade. We have one of the old, we have the oldest folk or the largest oldest folk parade in Philadelphia, and it's New Year's Day. It's the Mummers Parade, and they walk down, you know, they have these troops, these Mummer troops, and they all wear skirts and fancy outfits, and uh, some of them aren't fancy, but that's a whole other thing. Um, there's a fancy section that competes, and then a non-fancy. Um, they have the humorous ones, the clowns, 
Um, but anyway, our beloved Philadelphians dress and drag and dance down the street, and then they get drunk in our local dive bars. And, you know, it isn't New Year until someone's eating Scrapple and puking in your alley. <laughs> but uh, I always felt like it wasn't it wasn't New Year's Day until I got hit on by a dude in a skirt who's drunk at Dirty Franks. Thank you very much, Philadelphia. Anyway, mumming was a very early form of trick-or-treating, and it was actually more like Christmas caroling. Because uh, the people in costumes would recite Bible verses and sing hymns and put on short plays. And in Ireland, um, cakes were given as payment. And a lot of times uh, in Ireland, and you'll hear this, this is so an aside, um, but I don't know if anybody's listened to this podcast called Dolly Parton's America, but they talk about when the Scottish and Irish immigrants went to the Appalachians and kind of settled there they brought a lot of these songs these songs to the dead and they're like really brutal and you'll hear them um in country music now that's where the roots of these are where like a, a song about a girl that just loved a guy and then ended up getting drowned and or died of whatever and then he went off and you know it's like a long saga but it's always really brutal like people are dying and all that that's from this tradition and, um, you know, of singing songs to the dead. And so there used to be guys that would go town to town and just sing these songs, or women, sing the songs of how people died in other places. Interesting, right? Um, so there also was a, a part of All Saints Day where you would dress up like a ghost or a witch or a monster or some aspect of the dead, something scary, okay? Now, there is a Scottish practice called guising, which I mentioned earlier. It's a kind of a more of a secular version of souling. But in the Middle Ages, uh, children and poor adults would collect food and money in return for the prayers for the dead on All Souls Day. Geezers, that's what they're called in Scotland. There's, it's spelled guys, G-U-I-S-E-R-S, but they're pronounced geezers. Drop the prayers altogether in favor of songs, jokes, tricks. And there's this historian, um, Frederick Supp, who I think he's at Ball State. He said, and I, I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget it. The practice of trick-or-treating might originate in the Celtic custom of giving token bits of the harvest to spirits wandering outside the home on the evening of Samhain to placate them and prevent them from doing destructive things to the harvest and to your home. And he said, you know, once Christianity became established in these regions, in the regions, Celtic regions, young unmarried men would go house to house calling for gifts from spirit. And then he goes on to say, this is the time when the hard work of the harvest was done. So they would indulge in pranks to let off steam. And so they would dress up in costume, accept offerings. If people did not give them offerings, they would do the prank. So rather than... Uh, pledging for the dead they're doing these body songs and reciting poems and then you know the trick-or-treat thing happen so a lot of times you know wearing disguises was important so they wouldn't get accused of doing the the thing you know doing the pranks and then they would you know the pranks were blamed on the fairies and the costumes certainly helped this idea so there are other theories on how trick-or-treat got started and one theory is that um, because the Celtic food, people would leave food outside to appease the spirits that are traveling. 
um, you know, people would just go and take them. There's also another theory that uh, trick-or-treating stems from bell-snickling, which is a German-American cr Christmas tradition where children would dress in costume and they would go to their neighbors to see if they could guess the identity of the children. And in one version of the practice, the children were rewarded with treats if no one could identify them. So many of the traditions of Halloween in England fell by the wayside as Guy Fawkes Day on November 5th became a lot more popular. But Halloween kind of remained popular in Scotland and Ireland. So if you don't know what Guy Fawkes Day, this is a little side note. Guy Fawkes Day is on November 5th. It's also called Bonfire Night, which commemorates the gunpowder plot of 1605. Now, the gunpowder plot was foiled, um, and Guy Fawkes was um, basically an anarchist. Uh, that's what he's said to be. And so children would wear masks and carry effigies, and they would beg for money. Now, the, the mask that they would wear, the Guy Fawkes mask, is what they use in V for... If you ever saw the movie V for Vendetta, that's the mask they would use, um, which was said to look like Guy Fawkes, right? Um, and they would burn him in effigy. So um, they would kind of... So, so Guy Fawkes, November 5th, 1606, he... Uh, is executed for his role in the Catholic-led conspiracy to blow up Parliament and remove King James I, who was a Protestant, from power. Now, immediately after uh, the execution, uh, there was a bonfire, and like they they would burn effigies of Guy Fawkes, and they would burn symbolic bones of the Catholic Pope. Right, so. Um, that's why, you know, Guy Fawkes Day becomes this big celebration because there's people roaming in the streets and having parades and they would ask for a penny for the guy. And, you know, so that kind of overtook the Halloween celebrations. Um, so, you know, kind of getting back to Halloween, the very early American colonists that brought, brought over the traditions of All Saints Day and Halloween with them. So both the Anglicans and the Catholic settlers both celebrated the holiday. Um, the Puritans in New England, of course, they were kind of uh, funny ditties. You know, they're the problem. They're, they're why we have workaholism. Thank you, Puritans. Uh, they were generally against uh, everything, as they say in the podcast. Uh, I, the podcast is uh, everything everywhere. It's a 10-minute, like, little awesome uh, bit of, trivia or information and uh so when they did their halloween special that's what he said the puritans in new england are generally against everything and so i wrote that down i thought that was so funny um the celebration of halloween was of course very strictly limited because of the rigid rigid belief system of the protestants there but halloween was very common in maryland and the southern colonies and the beliefs and customs of different ethnic groups and american native americans um, meshed. And so a very distinctive American version of Halloween began to kind of emerge. Um, and so they were public events. They were celebrating the harvest. Uh, neighbors would share stories of the dead, uh, tell each other's fortunes, sing and dance. Again, what they were doing uh, pre-Christian uh, holidays. But colonial Halloween um, really featured the telling and retelling of ghost stories 
of stories of spirit, of fairies, of the land. Um, and so by the middle of the 19th century, you definitely have autumn festivals and harvest festivals. Halloween wasn't exactly celebrated the way we celebrate it now, but it was definitely celebrated. But in the second half of the 19th century, America's flooded with all these new immigrants, particularly from Ireland um, with the potato famine. So they re that really helped pop popularize the celebration of Halloween. And it was then that it really took off. And there's actually an 1894 article in Christian Work, which describes the holiday as a night when witches, evil spirits, and all mischief-brewing sprites went forth on dark, mysterious midnight revels. I love that. Um, so by the early 20th century, you see uh, kind of communities reviving these old world traditions of souling and geezing and uh, costumes had a resurgent in the 20th century um, as it started to transition from a religious celebration to a secular celebration. By the 1920s, you start seeing pranks happening with rowdy young people around Halloween. And of course, in the Great Depression, this kind of exacerbated the problem where there would be uh, more vandalism, more stealing, more physical assaults. Um, one of the things that seemed to come out of this during the Great Depression is that there was a widespread adoption of more like organized trick-or-treating traditions in the 1930s. Like, you know, let's 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 rein this in. So if, like we're watching how things go, then so chaos won't happen as often. Now, of course, World War II, like basically trick or treating was like done because no one could afford sugar and there was a sugar rationing. So everything kind of shut down and um, we see this really big resurgence of uh, Halloween customs coming up right after World War II because there was no longer sugar rationings. There's this really booming suburban class of people. There's this post-war baby boom. And, you know, suddenly people were kind of living high on the hog, so to speak. So they started really capitalizing on people's desire to get to kind of normality. This idea of like the forties and fifties and like this idealized like building of the middle class was really shown with things like trick or treating. So radio and TV advertisements were really geared towards um, candy companies trying to capitalize on Halloween. And so, um, you know, the phrase trick or treat, which kind of goes back to the 18th century tradition of pulling pranks uh, like tipping over an outhouse or something or throwing rotten eggs. Uh, but this became really popular in the 1950s. And so when trick-or-treating is shown in the Peanuts comic strip in 1951, it kind of like catches on too. And this was really a change too, where people weren't dressing like the dead or like scary things. They were, you could be like a robot or a ballet dancer or you know, a fireman or an astronaut or whatever it was, it, it, it changed to these scary things pertaining to death, to anything. And so you keep seeing this, uh, you know, the tradition of trick-or-treat is spreading as, as uh, depictions of movies are being shown. Like, this is what trick-or-treating is. So outside of the U.S. then, 
you'll see more trick-or-treating. Like even in the 80s, like with E.T., for example, there was a whole trick-or-treating scene, right? Um, so those things become important. So, you know, what's interesting is that Americans spend something like over $3 billion on candy at Halloween. It is the second largest commercial holiday, which is not surprising to me, but also surprising to me because it's a secular holiday, right? But anyway, let's talk about jack-o'-lanterns because, of course, pumpkins come into the Harvest Festival, uh, but they're nor native to North America. And so they were really an American contribution, the pumpkin. And of course, they're harvested around Halloween. So it was kind of a natural fit. And uh, this really comes, though, from Ireland, from Scotland, where people would carve uh, turnips and they hollowed out the, the turnip and placed like coal in there. Um, and this comes from this mythical character called Stingy Jack, who apparently, according to the myth, repeatedly trapped the devil and only let him go on the condition that Jack would never go to hell, right? Like he catches the devil and's like, I'm not letting you out until you promise I'm not going to hell. But when he actually died, heaven did not want Jack because he was talking to the devil too much, I assume. So he was forced to wander the earth as a ghost for eternity. Worst thing that you can imagine. <laughs> so the devil gives Jack a burning lump of coal, of course, because everything's hot in hell, right? And puts it in his turnip to light his way. And so locals eventually began carving these scary faces into turnips to frighten away evil spirits. And so the use of carved pumpkin becomes popularized by the Washington Irving story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, where the headless horseman's head was actually a carved pumpkin. And so that story is really popular around Halloween, even though it's not set at Halloween because it's about ghosts and pumpkins and all that stuff. Now, some of the lesser known rituals are all about um, these traditions of matchmaking and finding out your future, uh, like especially who you might marry. So um, many had to do with like helping women identify their future husband or reassure them that they would be married, uh, hopefully by next Halloween. In the 18th century Ireland, a matchmaking cook would bury a ring in her mashed potatoes on Halloween night, hoping to bring true love to the person who found it. Um, and Scotland fortune tellers would basically recommend that women name a hazelnut for each of the suitors and then toss the nuts into the fireplace. And the nut that burned to ashes rather than popping or exploding, the story went, represented the future husband. In some versions, the opposite is true. The nut that burned away symbolized love that would not last. Blah, blah, blah. I would say it was a ladder. That makes more sense to me. But I'm not making the rules. Like, don't hate the playa. Just hate the game. Um, anyway, another tale is that a young woman could eat a sugary concoction that was made of, like, walnuts, hazelnuts, nutmeg, and she would dream of her husband. I love all the dreamings of your husband things. Um, <laughs> young women would also, like, toss apple peels over their shoulder and uh, they would hope that they fell on the floor in the shape of their husband's initials. Um, some tried to uh, look at egg yolks floating in a bowl of water or stood in mirrors and darkened rooms 
holding candles and looking over their shoulder for their husband's faces. This is called scrying. This is a big deal during Samhain, uh, especially in modern Samhain celebrations. We kind of suggest the personal work that you do is scrying, divination, all of those kind of things. Um, so, you know, it is really fun to read about all the different ways that the past uh, kind of come in. Um, but, you know, when we celebrate uh, Samhain now, you know, those of us who are pagan um, or who follow the Earth Earth calendar or the lunar cycles, I should say the solar cycle and the lunar cycle, um, you know, we have interesting work to do at Samhain. Samhain is a good time to do divination work, protection spell on amulets, channeling, mediumship, talking to the dead. This is a good time to release. You know, it's the end of the year and the beginning of a new one. So we release and call in. Uh, this is a good time to do workings around breaking karmic or ancestral patterns, cord cutting. Of course, you can work with masks and archetypes. You know, try dressing like your favorite tarot card this year something that I do with tarot students all the time. Of course, we're making ancestral altars and altars to the dead. We can have spirit dinners or as they call them, dumb, dumb suppers, if you want to. Candle magic, death work. And what death work is, is really thinking about what is a good death and how uh, I feel, how my relationship is with death. Uh, of course, carving pumpkins for protection. I did one year try to carve a turnip and that is hard. That is hard work. I am just going to say that because it doesn't easily get carved in the way a pumpkin does. So you can also visit the grave uh, sites and cemeteries of the dead. And of course, observing silence to communicate and honor the dead. There are a lot of good correspondences for this time. Um, you can kind of look at um, the plant medicine uh, it's mugwort and rosemary, which is very protective. You can use marigold or calendula, uh, patchouli. You can even use like frankincense, those kind, you know, they're going to be protective and, and wonderful. Um, our stones that we use are obsidian, labradorite, smoky quartz, Apache tear, dendritic agate, indigo gabbro, and celestial quartz. Our animal medicine, you know, we work with owl, we work with raven, we work with spider, and of course black cats are the said to be the familiars of witches, um, but they do have that kind of mystery and feminine energy. We're really honoring and communing with our own sense of uh, grief and loss and the dead, but also, you know, celebrating the end of harvest, the beginning of the dark season, um, and there's a lot of work that we can do during this time to honor our own spiritual uh, journey. So the, some of the goddesses and gods that you can work with, I mean, mostly they're um, the gods and goddesses of death. So Persephone would be considered the goddess of death. Hades, the god of the underworld. Uh, you can honor the crone goddesses, any goddess that's going to appear as an old woman. Um, and so many witches will work with one crone. They may call her the hag. Um, but, you know, the crone goddesses are wonderful. I have a little statue of a crone goddess holding a, um, a uh, owl, which I love. 
Um, but you can work with Hecate. She's not a crone goddess, but you can work with Hecate. You can work with Demeter in her grieving state, the one she wanders the earth. She does transform into a crone uh, to, to hide herself. So you can work with her. Astarte, Inanna, Kali, the Morrigan. These are the kind of goddesses that we work with at this time. But I hope you have a blessed Samhain. I know I am going to. I'm going to be doing a ancestral healing circle. Uh, and I love doing these. And so that'll be really fun. So thank you for joining me on this long history of Samhain and Halloween. Thanks for listening to Centered with me, Angie Yinkst. If you'd like to send me a question or comment about this show or any shows, you can send them to angie at themoonandstone.com. <laughs>